Hey, welcome to Guitar Knobs, the guitars, gear, noise, and nonsense podcast hosted today by these knobs. Tony Dudzik, Pick Guardian. Jared Brandon, the pickup guy. <laughs> it just still sounds weird. Hey, everybody, this is me, Todd Novak. Welcome to the Guitar Knobs podcast. We are thrilled to death Woo-hoo! that you are listening to our show tonight, today, tonight. Tomorrow. It's tonight. Wherever you are. They're listening tomorrow. Wherever you're listening, this is a good thing. Uh, yeah. We uh, are busting at the seams because tonight we have got a hell of a show. We've got two gentlemen on who are going to introduce themselves right now. I am Brad Talinsky, the great. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brad Talinsky, I was the editor-in-chief of Guitar World for uh, quite a number of years and have written books like Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page, Play It Loud, A History of the Electric Guitar. But uh, I am here with my co-author, Chris Gill, to talk about Eruption, Conversations with Eddie Van Halen. Chris? Yes, and I'm, I'm just Chris. I'm, I'm uh, just a guitar geek, an average guitar geek, um, you know, huh. writing... For 30 years about various stuff, just so I can get free equipment. So that's <laughs> and, and meet hey. rock stars. That that works. I'm following in your footsteps, my friend. <laughs> cool. All good. Yeah. He, he is not Chris the Great. He is Chris the Good. <laughs> Chris the Magnificent. Chris the Lesser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, gentlemen, uh, hopefully, and everybody that is listening right now, you can tell we are we're already having a great time. I had the pleasure of talking with Brad earlier, and we could have gone on for quite some time. I'm very sure. Uh, so we're thrilled about this opportunity to get to talk to these two guys about, uh, as Brad mentioned, their upcoming book, Eruption. And uh, and when I say upcoming, uh, they'll get into the, all of the release stuff. So I just don't want to, you know, I don't know what the exact legals are of that, but um, I'm sure they're going to tell us. But we're going to find out a whole bunch of stuff about the great Eddie Van Halen, uh, about his, his guitars, the gear, the origin, the myths, the truths, the legends, and then also just find out a little bit about, you know, what was it like uh, hanging out and talking and, and, and just being around the guy. So is, is that an adequate setup for you guys, you think? Feels yeah. good to me. Okay, good. perfect. Oh, I passed the first game, thank God. <laughs> I'm so nervous. <laughs> it's like Super uh, you guys, Mario. I mean, you guys are giants in the industry, so like I'm, I'm legitimately... <laughs> I'm a, I'm a little nervous. He's, very, he's all verklempt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so, hey, we got a quick announcement here. Uh, just wanted to let everybody know who has been waiting with bated breath. Mm. Not really sure what that means, but waiting with that anyways. Uh, for the announcement on the Spark Amp giveaway. <gasps> yes, I did talk to Positive Grid this week. Yes. They have... Lock down a winner, and they have notified said winner, but said winner has not responded yet, so I can't get an official name to announce it officially. So, gonna have to hang on just a second. And you might want to check your emails to find <laughs> out if that's if you're the winner here. Check everybody. your junk folder exactly. Now, if I entered as Tony Balonsky, uh, I would they have to entered me? you <laughs> like that already. <laughs> I, seriously, I think I might have. Uh, 
So anyways, um, more to come on that. But in the meantime, you can still go get your own Positive oh, Grid yes. Spark Amp and save 10 bucks off uh, with the code, all caps, Guitar Knobs and the number 10, okay? Guitar Knobs, number 10, PositiveGrid.com. Go get your 10 bucks off this amazing little amp. And um, if you do it soon, mm-hmm. they have a very good deal going on, which is $50 off the list price. Yeah. You just get all kinds of stuff off. And a free gig bag, carry bag. Mm-hmm. And with you, this extra $10 off, you're walking out the door for under 250 bucks. Yeah, it's crazy. Nice. It's such a nice piece of gear. I got mine, and Zachary just got his the other day. Yeah. Mine so, is supposed got, to be here tomorrow. <laughs> I've got one of those too. You do, man. Do. Everybody's got. And they're great. Everybody's yeah. got the spark. They're fantastic things. Um, oh, right. I had one. And they took it away from me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Get your own. I mean, they they're great. They they're a great Bluetooth speaker, even if you're not playing guitar. <laughs> yes, that's true. Buy one for your Keep, drummer. Except except Jared keeps <laughs> t- t- uh, yelling, screaming Alexa at it, so it's, it doesn't work like that. Uh, yeah. Sparky, you got to say Sparky. So, uh, anyways, let's uh, find out what we are doing, what's going on in our music worlds this week, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We're gonna start off with Tanya over here, and then we're gonna check in with Brad and Chris. Okay, shall I start? Yes, please. Thank you. Um, so I, I, I did get official notice now uh, about NAM uh-huh. for 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, January is not happening. Right. They have moved everything uh, to June. I think it's the first weekend of June mm-hmm. out in California. Yes. Yeah. So that means there will be no summer Nashville show. Yep. I sort of believe that there will never be another Nashville summer I show. I think that's fine. I think that opens the door for opportunity for some other kind of awesome show. Jared and I were talking about this last night, actually, like yeah. what they do in Texas, you know, like a bunch of more artists and, and, and more guitar-centered, focused, not centered, not guitar-centered, but guitar-focused. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, um, so hopefully that goes off without a hitch uh, next June, in, yeah. in June of 2022. Um, so that, 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 you know, I'm looking forward to that. I am looking forward to it. Are you going to go with me? Yeah, we'll go. Okay, fine. Jared will be stuck at Gibson. (laughs) 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 Brad, uh, you and Chris can hang out with us. We have a, we have a really great time. We take this really crappy 71 Winnebago all the way down. (laughs) 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 You guys have a, you guys have a 71? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's The 71, I mean, that, the 70 is the money Winnebago. (laughs) Yes, yes. You guys just missed. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Uh, I that's, think that's when they got rid of the self-cleaning toilets. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so thank you, Tony, for that's that. That's just a little update. I appreciate that. Uh, Brad, how about yourself? I, I was... Uh Oh, I can't I can't reveal this, but uh, I was <laughs> I got a picture from a rock star friend of mine with a new guitar and he was like, can you guess what this is? And I was like, I was looking at it. It was a white SG with two gold-plated pickups, but vintage. And he was like, do you know who this belonged to? Bob Dharma. 
<laughs> that's what that's what I guessed. But Dharma Oyster Cult. Less Paul, right? What's that? Wouldn't wouldn't it be less Paul? Ding ding ding. Ding ding ding. Yeah, he didn't for the win. Yeah, he didn't like the center pickup. Yeah. Didn't Mary or Mary Ford had the three pickup, right? She did have one with three pickups, okay. yes. Wow. Yeah. So that was sort of cool. That's uh, very cool. Good answer, Jared. Thank you. Yeah, tell him what he won, Todd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, check in with uh, Chris. What did you have going on in your music world this week? Absolutely nothing. I mean, hey, I'm just... Um, come I'm on. Actually, I'm, I'm trying to decide what to do for my next um, tonal recall column in Guitar World magazine. So if anybody wants to know um, how a sound on a certain record was done, give me your requests. Oh, okay. Ah. All right. Oh, that's... That's where, going on. Where, where do they give those requests? Uh, good question. <laughs> um, sent it to the um, Guitar World um, editor um, online, the online editor, and they, they will funnel it to me. Okay, nice. So, yeah. so guys, is there is there a, a guitar sound that you guys always wondered, like how how did they get that? How did they do that? Like how did they, you know, what guitar are they using? Oh man, there's a lot. Yeah, um, offhand. How do you do it? I mean, you know, honestly, for the longest time, I was really intrigued at Johnny Marr's sound because it just had so, so, oh, well, like so the, open and The house soon beautiful. is now, okay. you know, stuff is like, very cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Been there, done that. Okay. Yes. I'll okay. have to send you guys a PDF of that one. So. I would love oh, to Please do, yes. And actually, the funny thing was is that Johnny, I, I based my article on what Johnny Marr said, and the producer slash engineer of that record came back and said actually this is what really <laughs> happened on that record this is what we actually used so it was no kind kidding. of a, a bit of an educational process it was very cool what's what's the gist of it chris uh the gist was about gosh i think two or three fender amps but a lot of the um the tremolo was actually created with a gate um oh. and oh, i'm trying to remember because it's it was a while ago but um i can't even remember what guitar he used to be honest so <laughs> Mm. But um, it was it wasn't it wasn't just a matter of setting up a bunch of Fender amps with the um, with the vibrato going. It was a little bit more complicated than that. Interesting. No. Would that would that have been uh, the Rickenbacker? Well, it, I don't in the studio. I don't think he. I mean, he. I mean, there. We've talked about this before that a lot of times people yeah, whatever who, who are known live. for yeah. Rickenbackers, they're usually playing a Telecaster in the studio. Oh. Yeah, I believe it was a Fender of some sort. It was either that or it was Les Paul. I can't really remember, though. I'd huh. I'm, I'm going to have to dig it up. All right. Well, I'd be, I'd love to read that. So if you if you are able to find that, uh, I let me know. Um, Jared, how about yourself? Uh, I went to a wedding over the weekend, <laughs> and... <laughs> There the you person go. getting yeah. oh here it goes yeah you just just sit back and relax and listen <laughs> uh, a good friend of mine he was a drummer in a band I was in in the past and he must have invited everybody he was in a band with because I saw a lot of old friends that I haven't seen in over twenty years in the band in our local band uh, circuit you know and it was. It was like a reunion. It was more than what I thought. I thought I would just go to this wedding, just say hi to a few familiar faces, eat a you know chicken sandwich, and leave. But it was, <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun uh, seeing a lot of uh, familiar faces and and uh, blast from the past. So it was 
did they- I don't know, man. I mean, you you kind of dream about that, you know, just playing with old, and they had instruments and all that stuff set up, so we got to play again, you know, to try to play what we did twenty some years ago, back in you know what we did in the nineties or whatever. So it was uh, it, it was a lot more than what I thought. I, I mean, to hell with the wedding, right? I mean, I had a great time. <laughs> With yes. seeing all my old I'm friends, sure the bride would say that too. Now, did they uh, did they whoever, have a did they have a cake, cupcakes, or cookie table? They had both. But check this out. This is so Jared. I didn't know the bride's name, so I just put Mister and Mrs. Jake Stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know her that, first that's name. A, that's acceptable. Do you know her name now? Yeah, it's Carrie. Okay, oh, all that's right. okay. Well, you learned something. <laughs> Good job. For me this week, uh, I spent uh, a fair amount of time uh, with Vaderin pedals. Uh, mm. uh, so I got to Vaderin pedals sent us some stuff, and uh, I got to try out the uh, HPX, which mm-hmm. is uh, their version of the harmonic percolator. Um, their Tone Fox, the Vaporizer, and the Cherry Fuzz. So I'm just getting familiar with all those. Tony had some time with yep. those, and so now I got him back, and we're, he's going to be on the show pretty soon. Uh, so it was really fun just kind of you know being able to play around with that. That The Harmonic Percolator's got so much tonal range of what you can do with it. So it I was, like the Vaporizer. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm liking them all. I just okay. got to get more familiar with them. So that's what I got to do. Um, and then, uh, yeah. I got your answer on uh, the Johnny Marr guitar oh, was cool. Epiphone Casino. Oh, Casino. Oh, okay. All right. Casino, yeah. And it was recorded uh, through a stereo, Roland Jazz Chorus, and some Fender Twins. And he used a drummer noise gate trigger uh, set to a 16th note trigger from a cowbell coming from a Lindrum. Wow. Yeah. More cowbell. <laughs> More cowbell. That's amazing. Well, yeah, thank you. That's really cool <laughs> to find out. <laughs> Holy mackerel! I'm 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 astounded by that. That was very accurate and amazing. It's it's not easy to make Todd speechless. No. So let's move on. Oh, geez. Hey, Brad and Chris. Hey, hey. Do you I, do you guys use patch cables? Absolutely. Have you ever tried Tour Gear Design patch cables? Why? What is this of which you speak? These are really nice. <laughs> says so says on the label, really nice. Really nice. Uh, it's really, a really nice. nice. It's made it, it, yeah. These are really nice. You're selling the hell out of these. <laughs> no, these are very cool. They're very flat. The cable itself is Yeah, it's like a flat. flat ribbon cable. The uh, the plug itself is not much larger than a, the actual quarter-inch jack. Yeah. They come in a variety of shapes so that if you have a, a, a pedal that has a... S-shape, uh, You know, a top... top top jacks and you want to connect it to something with a side jack you don't have to twist them all up they 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 just do it yeah wow super super low profile and uh sealed ends they're yeah. really incredible they're 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 pretty much idiot proof yeah wow yeah well i'm an idiot so yeah perfect <laughs> and perfect and, and all the lengths they got oh my goodness you know from three inches to to i believe 24 and colors and any colors they're uh, right now i believe they're all black i think it's all black you yeah. can have any color you want as long as it's black yeah just cool. like a ford in order to get those, you need to go over to tourgeardesigns.com forward slash discount forward slash the guitar knobs. You're going to save 10% off your entire order. You, now you're telling me you're saying an extra 10% on an something extra 10%. is already they're reasonably already ridiculously priced? affordable. For real, they actually are. Yeah, and, they're, they're, they're um, cool. I, I keep running into people who are, who are using them 
uh, as a result of trying one out, and then the whole board is done. Like well, that. and I, as well, we as we've talked about, I think if you replaced your standard pancake cables with these cables, you might be able to fit a lot more. Two more pedals on your board, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, tourgearddesigns.com uh, forward slash discount forward slash the guitar knobs. Save 10% on your whole order. Thank you to Tour Gear Designs for uh, supporting our show and for sponsoring the four on the floor. How about some of Oh, Tony, you look <laughs> like you're going to die. One, two, one, two, three. Four on the floor. All right, Brad Delinsky, uh, let's hear your four on the floor. Well, Todd, I believe that you really shouldn't have. I mean, this is just my personal philosophy, <laughs> but as a guitar player, yeah, I only believe, other than your tuner, that you should only have, you should force yourself just to pick four uh, effects at, at a time. Okay. I think any more than that, it's a little excessive. And uh, so... I usually have a, uh, a a distortion, a delay, and a couple of other, uh, you know, fancy Dan trick sort of pedals. Okay. All right. So I have uh, for my uh, for my distortion is the Mojo Mojo by TC Electronic. Okay. It's yeah. not for it's not for everybody. What I liked about it was. You know, I mostly uh, record original stuff, so I try to create like a, you know, my own sound. And I didn't want something generic. And what's cool about the Mojo Mojo is that uh, it's sort of a darker, it's a it's a really dusky sounding uh, overdrive. And I've only really seen like, um, I think Vernon Reed has one on his pedal board. I haven't seen too many people use it, but anyways, I love it. Uh, the other one's sort of a standard uh, boss, you know, digital delay. Uh, one of my, uh, <clears throat> the third pedal is I have the Boss Terra Echo. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. That's been on uh, on the show as a four on the floor before, yeah. Yeah, I just like it because... It has this sort of like you can get these weird effects that are just add to the texture, mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, uh, you know, you have like some you play some cool chord and you just hear some weird rumbly thing in the background. I dig that. And then uh, and then my other pedal is the Strymon Big Sky uh for all sorts of other textural needs for zillions of other things that you can do with that pedal yeah that is a very that's been on a bunch of boards that we've had too oh yeah yeah that's one of the most often mentioned ones that we've had on between sure. that and the, and the strymon flint yep. yep cool well the flint is the is probably the best tremolo pedal out there these days in my opinion yeah yeah most would agree uh mm. let's see here Chris, how about yourself? Well, uh, it's really hard for me to limit to four, but having said that, I will. Um, but so, wait, wait, wait. Why is it hard for you to limit it to four? Uh, I, I own over 500 <laughs> pedals <laughs> uh, from vintage to boutique to you name it, pretty much. Even weird stuff I found over in Japan. So that's um, uh, just uh, kind of hard for me to limit to four, but I will try my best to do so. Amazing. All right, fire away. 
Cool. Well, my first and foremost would have to be a clean boost. And obviously the king daddy of them all would be um, the Klon Centaur, which I'm kicking myself for not buying when I got one to review way back in the day when they first came out. Um, So the Klon KTR, um, that pedal, you know, just something like that. I just find the sweetening of it, just what it does to the tone, just how it just you know, it's it's kind of like it just pumps you up. Your tone, your tones gets pumped up. <laughs> so, um, and if I didn't have that, uh, the solo Dallas Storm would be a good you know oh, yeah. replacement for that. Oh, so, but yeah. um, and then of course a delay. You got to have a delay. Um, I like delay for everything. You know, whether it's you know a little bit for room uh, reverb type of ambience to you know your full on edge type of echoes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the three quarter note trick. Uh, but that my choice would be the Strymon El Capistan. Oh, uh, yeah. Because I just find I, I have a couple, you know, old tape echoes, and it's just a pain in the ass to keep those things maintained. Uh, they sound great, but the Capistan the does the trick, and I can take it to a gig and not have to worry about, you know, the tape getting messed up by someone spilling beer on it or whatever, and the motor is getting out of whack. You name it. Um, then... Uh, good old treble booster uh, of the Dallas Rangemaster variety. Mm-hmm. Uh, my choice for that right now, my probably my favorite is the Analog Man Beano Boost. Mm. Um, I like just the, the fact that it has the three switches to kind of change the tonal character, although I really prefer the, the straight-out classic setting. Um, but as part of my, my tonal recall things, I found so many players, so, so many of my favorite classic tones were done with an old British treble booster. And it just does magical things. It really, it should be called like a, a, a mid-range, um, you know, sweetener or something like that. Because it just, I find it just gives you this really sweet mid-range. Uh, and you got the Brian May thing going on. You've got Rory Gallagher. You've got Tony Iommi. You've got Richie Blackmore. Um, you know, just all those players. It's just, for me, it's, it's a go-to. So, you know, the, I think that, you know, treble boost can sometimes be a bit of a misnomer. Absolutely. Because it's, you know, I think, you know, Starting guitar players think treble boost. Well, well, my guitar is already bright. Yeah. But, uh, you know, how, how, in your opinion, how does it sweeten the sound? Well, it, first of all, it, it, it shelves off, it cuts off the bass. It acts like a, a bass filter, like you would, like any good recording engineer would do. It mm-hmm. just basically takes out those extra bass frequencies, which is what really muddies up your tone, mm-hmm. uh, boosts the mid range. And as a result, the treble gets a little bit brighter, but not much, actually. It's really like the mid range gets more punchy and just focused. Mm-hmm. They just and figured, of course, they figured that bass cut wouldn't make any sense to anyone. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that, it might have been just a happy byproduct of it all, but um, that's what I found especially with you know a lot of those old british amps they do have a lot of bass and everything and that just it helps you really cut through especially when you're playing at stage volume and mm-hmm. of course yeah. it gives you a little extra grit as well a little extra boost in your signal i'm glad that you mentioned the beano that hasn't actually made it on a- at all on no. the fourth floor. we've had i mean like 500 some probably close to six at least 600 pedals Oh, wow. On, yeah. yeah, mentioned over the last we're gonna have to, we're gonna I'll bet you my time. next one has never been mentioned either. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Ibanez Jetlizer. Jetlizer? The Ibanez Jetlizer, also made by Maxon in like 76 to 78. Hmm. It's uh, basically a phase shifter, and it's a great phase shifter, first of all. It kind of has a little bit of that kind of chewy, kind of like the um, the Maestro uh, the, the PS1A, uh, the one that was used in like, um, like John Paul Jones used it with Zeppelin and Ernie Isley used it on that lady. Um, but it goes a little bit beyond that. Um, it also has what they call a jet setting, which is kind of like a white noise generator. Oh, that weird. You can, 
step in and, and just engage. And it's really cool because you have to put that white noise in there and it just, it, it makes it sound like a jet, you know, it's, that's what you want to do. It, it makes it kind of flangy and just swirly and, <laughs> and it's just, it's a great weird pedal, but it's also a great usable phase shifter as well. Is it like, have you seen Junior's grades? Is it like <laughs> <Yeah>. that kind of? <laughs> kind of. Kind of like that. Yeah. So. Okay. And just I trying to, to imagine it. I'm just trying I to I have to give it. a shout out to my, my friends over in Tokyo, um, the Weed Sweet Drive and the Honda Soundworks Fujiyama Drive, uh, the British. Those are just, when it comes to distortion, I think the Japanese just do something absolutely wacky and crazy and beautiful. And those two pedals... Those, those are my bonus pedals. So, wow, <laughs> that's that's my six. <laughs> the the way that you described the uh, Ibanez Jetlizer, um, also known as the JL seventy. Ooh, yes, oh, there you I, go. You I found just it. looked it up. It's orange and yeah. black. Hey, oh, we already like it. Um, <laughs> but it, when you when you were describing that, that made me think of uh, living in stereo from the yeah. cars. Like yeah, that, it's kind of it's opening, kind of like that. Yeah, you, you know, just this sort of like, yeah. Oh, that's such a great song. Anyway, yeah. I love the cars, doggone it. I'm shaking um, like tremolo. Uh, yeah. So, uh, wow, that is, that's some uh, eclectic Yeah, I'll say. Stuff. <laughs> I like it. Uh, I, yeah, there's a couple of those uh, jetlizers on Reverb. Uh, you, you may have to uh, mortgage your house to get them. But <laughs> yeah, they're not Oof. cheap anymore. I was lucky. I found them back in the day when you, they were just like, no one wanted that stuff. Yeah, so. They're about 500 bucks right now. Hmm. Yeah, and you have to get them from Australia and, and like Italy or something. Wow. Crazy, crazy. Well, that is a vault I would like to peep my head into, my friend. Uh, maybe someday we'll get the opportunity to talk more about that. Um, and, and also, you, um, you mentioned uh, the what you're writing for a few times. Uh, do you want to explain that a little bit? Tonal Recall specifically. Yeah, and that's just, it's basically where I take a, a song and kind of dissect the, the guitar tone, basically the gear. I mean, I, sometimes I get into the recording technique, but not too much because we only have so much space. Mm -hmm. But basically, it's like the rig that was used on it, on, the, on a particular song. Cool. Um, you know, it kind of when I started, what started it out, um, well, first of all, it's just my own obsession. I, I have my gear collection, which is why I have 500 pedals, uh, 80 amplifiers, and 150 guitars. It's been trying to <laughs> copy wow. all these sounds I've heard on record. So it's like, okay, I need an Angus Young rig. I need a Brian May rig. I need an Eddie Van Halen rig. Uh -huh. I need a Metallica rig. I need a, a Dimebag Daryl rig. Um, Can you do me a favor and call my wife and tell, him, <laughs> tell her that I'm not so bad? <laughs> <laughs> it will cost you, though, but uh, yeah, I'll do it. I'll send you a guitar. <laughs> okay, yeah. cool. There you go. Perfect. Uh, that, now make everybody happy. Chris, Chris, Chris's neighbors have the police on their speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> my neighbor, my neighbor, like, he, he's the perfect dad rock guy. He wears, like, Aussie shirts and he's always blasting Led Zeppelin. So they actually like it when they hear the sounds coming out of my basement. So oh, they actually great. dig it. <laughs> that's very cool. Well, uh, thank you both for sharing your four on the floor. It's always super fun to hear what other people value and what they hold dear and what they love. Uh, yeah. So it's it's really, really cool. And we always learn something new, which is what the show is really about. I mean, when it comes down to it. So uh, speaking of learning new things, uh, <laughs> We are going to benefit from all of the hard work that you've put into your book called Eruption. I'm going to let you guys set this up so that I don't butcher it. So please introduce us to Eruption. Well, I think the uh, sort of idea behind 
uh, eruption conversations with Eddie Van Halen is to, uh, you know, present like a full portrait of this guy that so many people have loved, not only from his, uh, you know, sort of personal, uh, uh, you know, from his personality to what he did to uh, his music and how he played and, you know, to give the full sort of, uh, you know, package of who Eddie Van Halen is, who was, you know, people see him as this sort of smiling boy next door, but he was a rather complex individual. And uh, the idea behind the book was to try to show all the different facets of, of what he was all about. I mean, we'd seen some other books out there, and they sort of focus more about the drama. And uh, we definitely have that part of it in the book. But the other part is just, hey, man, first and foremost, the guy was a guitar player. Mm-hmm. And so that had to be included in this book. And on top of that, it was just, it was the whole package. It was just him as a guitar player, him as a composer, him as a, a, a musical instrument innovator. Um, that was the kind of things we wanted to dive into. And it's also very important to tell as much of Ed's story as we could in his own words, because unfortunately he didn't have the opportunity before he passed to sit down and tell his life story. Um, although he actually did because he told us in the course of all these interviews that we had done with him over the years. Um, we just felt this was a proper tribute to the guy. Um, we wanted to really present his story the way that we thought he would present it and really, you know, let him tell as much of it as, as he could in his own words. I mean, obviously we do have our intros where we go into a little bit more in depth because there's some topics he didn't talk about and we just need to set things up so people understand what the interviews are about. But it really was, the idea was just, this is like as close as you can get to a genuine Eddie Van Halen autobiography. Hmm. And where are these, where are these interviews coming from? Where are these perspectives coming from? Well, uh, both Chris and I have known Eddie for, I guess it's getting close to three decades now. And uh, it was mostly through our both of our writing and, and work with Guitar World that we would regularly get a chance to talk with Ed. Um, and the thing about Ed was that he was always looking to make personal connections with people. So, you know, by the a couple of by the second or third time we would talk to him it was like talking to an old friend and he sort of wanted it that way before we get into the i guess the meat and potatoes of of all of the interviews and things like that what i mean i think you just laid out a, a kind of a groundwork now what what kind of a guy was he to to talk to i mean was he i mean everything i've heard and 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 read is that he was you know a kind of a quiet humble guy is that true I don't know if he was quiet exactly. I would, yeah. I would, <laughs> that's not a word I would use to describe Eddie Van Halen at all. Quiet, uh, that would probably be way down the list. I'm talking off stage. Yeah. Was he? Was I mean, how was he? How was he off stage? He, he was a good dude, and and that was that was the great thing about it. And pretty honest, uh, you know, you could ask him pretty much anything that you wanted to. There wasn't really anything off limits, and he would tell you, uh, you know pretty honestly how he felt about things. He wasn't that circumspect, you know. Um, So it was always a great interview. It was always fun. Sometimes he would say things off the record. Uh, Those are 
a lot of that's in this book now, you know, in, mm-hmm. in retrospect. Um, but uh, he was a good guy. And I, I guess going back to uh, what you're saying is sort of the purpose of the book, too, is that he had a fairly complex life. And in the book, we tried to provide this, uh, you know, arc. He came over to the U.S. uh, as an immigrant, couldn't speak English when he came here, was bullied and harassed uh, as, you know, as a young man at school. So what happened was he sort of retreated into his own world, which was a world of music, of playing piano, playing guitar. And uh, it was sort of during this period that he developed this sort of social anxiety about dealing with people and dealing with people at large. Mm. So he tried to present that story. And then all of a sudden, because of his, uh, you know, uh, focus on music and introversion, if you will, he became this incredible player that we all know and became a superstar and we sort of examine, you know, how well or not how well he was prepared to deal with that and mm. all the impact that that ended up having on his life. Mm. You know, one of the books that I've enjoyed recently was uh, Running with the Devil um, from the perspective of their their his, their manager. Um, and that one obviously does go into quite a lot of the exploits and everything, but I... I think one of the things that I pulled from that, touching on what you just described, was this this a very simple guy in a very complex life. And that's I think yeah to a T that really that 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 sums him up. I mean, there's uh, I think there's a quote in the book where it says like you know if I didn't learn how to play guitar, I'd probably be pumping mm. gas. Yeah, you know mm. that way he'd have to live in New Jersey or Oregon. So yeah. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Yeah, um, that was you know amidst all of the shenanigans and everything, and the, the the craziness that they talked about. That particular thing struck me because I, I don't think most you know we growing up watching, we never would have imagined that this guy is just like, I just want to do my thing. Why does everything have to be so complicated? Can't you do I just to even to the point of at one point like he just wanted to quit. All together because it's like I don't, I don't. This isn't why I'm doing this, which is shocking. It's crazy to to think about somebody at the top of their game going like I'm. I just let me out of here. Well, you know, I don't know if he was so simple. You know, I mean, um, I, I I thought he was. He's sort of a complicated guy in a certain kind of way. Uh, like if you're simple, you aren't completely reinventing the guitar. Well, I you just are, mean simple yeah. in the sense of um, he he uh, was sort of focused, single-minded, simple. Not like um, you know all of the trappings of everything that 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 were pi- being piled on with him. Yeah, and he just he's like, I just want to play awesome music, and I'm doing this stuff. That's that. I don't mean simple, like you know, a simpleton or right, something right. like that. I mean, obviously, he was a genius, but uh, th- that's what I meant. Yeah, there's a there's a story in the book actually that sort of goes to that point, where uh, he's at Frank Zappa's studio uh, with Steve I, and the three of them are jamming, and they're playing on this guitar, sort of passing it around, and uh, 
the guitar has like some fret buzz. And uh, Steve, uh, Steve said, well, most people would just say, hey, get, get me a new guitar. But Ed just basically uh, asked Frank for a screwdriver and shoved it underneath the, the, uh, uh, the nut and lifted it up a little bit and proceeded just to keep on playing, you know, <laughs> without the buzz. So uh, Steve said that summed up Ed to him in a nutshell. Like if he needed to get something done, he just did it. He just took it into his own hands and, you know, uh, made it happen. Right. Uh, can you, can either of you talk about any one of the more um, extraordinary occurrences that, that you felt that you had with your time with him? I can definitely speak to that. Uh, it was 2013. Uh, the cover story I did with him for Guitar Aficionado magazine, where we basically uh, were doing a feature on his guitar collection. Mm-hmm. And that was just phenomenal because that was spending the whole day at 5150. Uh, they pulled out, him and Matt Brock pulled out 50 guitars for me to check out and photograph uh, with Kev, photographer Ken, Kevin Scanlon, great photographer. Um, and basically, we just we went through, saw all these guitars, all these legendary guitars, obviously the Frankenstein. I got the hold of Frankenstein, uh, the 5150 guitar, the Rude guitar. Uh, it just goes on and on, the, the Carved Dragon guitar. Um, all these iconic instruments, a bunch of stuff I never had any idea he ever had. He had like this Vox guitar organ, which was like really bizarre. It's like, you know, and he said, yeah, I was doing, I was doing something with, uh, Chris Cornell and like, man, that, that dude will sing to anything, you know? And <laughs> it's, uh, but it was just, it's just amazing day. I mean, it was talk about guitar heaven. There's like vintage, I mean, it, for a vintage guitarist, it might've been like going to a, a Halloween horror house because <laughs> there were these beautiful, 50s, you know, 57 strats, and the volume control was taken off of both of them, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, um, it, and one had 5150 scratched into the finish. Um, it was just, um, you know, just remarkable to see. And I mean, there's a, a guitar from BB King that BB uh, King had given him a Lucille guitar and signed it, and Ed had taken the bridge and a bunch of parts off of it, you know, and used it for some <laughs> other project. Uh, and he's just like, ah, I'm not sentimental about my guitars. You know, so, um, but that was amazing. Then, you know, after we took the photos, we sat down and spent a good part of a few hours going through each one. And he told me the stories behind each one. Wow. And um, you'll see that in the book in the Eddie's oddities section, because that was something when we were working on the narrative. It's like, there's these great stories, but they don't really quite fit in to the overall arcing story that we were telling. But there's like, you know, like when he was working on learning to see and uh, he had this Telecaster and that he wanted to use for this one overdub. And he said, I just, he couldn't get it in tune. So he took it outside and threw it up in the air. And instead he got these three airline guitars and clamped them to stools and tuned each one to an open tuning. And then when the part came up, he just would lean over and strike the chord on each one, you know, just like crazy, you know, mad scientist type of stuff, you know? And, uh, but that, yeah, that was amazing. And then the next day we spent on the beach at Malibu, we went over to, to Valerie Bertinelli's house um, and went down on the beach and shot some crazy photos of like him with this huge Gibson Mando base from 1910. <laughs> um, that was used for the cover image. Ed wanted to use that image on the cover. A bunch of people said, why didn't you use the Frankenstein? Like Ed wanted this wacky off the wall 
photo, but it right. was a great day. We're on the beach and, you know, he's got all these crazy instruments and people are walking by, like looking at us and like going, what, you know? And like, yeah. it's like, do you realize you are in the presence of greatness? You know? <laughs> wow. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I had a couple of memorable moments with that. I mean, I got to see a band rehearsal at like SAR, which was incredible. Just sitting there and watching the band basically play in a room to me. Um, so that was fun. But uh, this is sort of a story that sums up a little bit of who Ed was. Uh, so I went to go see him uh, play. This was sometime in, in the late, no, it, it was probably like in the mid-90s somewhere. And we went to some enormo, enormo dome somewhere and uh, I went backstage afterwards and said hey to Ed and we hung out a little bit and he leans over to me and he says uh, Brad I gotta I, I gotta tell you something and I'm like oh, what's up he says this isn't this isn't the right place this is a follow me so we leave this room uh, the backstage area and he starts walking into uh, sort of the uh, concert you know, to the backstage area. And I'm, I'm following him. I'm going, Where are we going, Ed? He says, just follow me, follow me. And uh, we go back and he takes me into the bathroom. And we're the only two guys standing into the in this bathroom. And I said, what's up? And he says, listen, I got to tell you something. You got to do something with your hair. <laughs> 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 oh <my God. laughs> yeah, you, that's good yeah 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 you gotta fluff it up you got i don't uh, i don't know but right now this thing isn't working for you <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> sakes you got to do some with your hair. Oh my god! <laughs> but you know, I mean, that was that was that. I mean, there was a sort of sweetness in that gesture. <laughs> so, yeah, he didn't want to embarrass you in front of a bunch. I guess. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And you know that he cared on some level. You yeah. know. Wow. Now, most of the uh, a lot of the book, and you're 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 talking with him, but I I also know that you know you you spent a lot of time. Uh, especially uh, uh, Chris with the uh, the Guitar World, uh, the recent article that you put out uh, regarding the equipment, um, and that was, I mean that I needed like it, I felt like I was yeah we in needed the, a flow chart the beautiful mind you know uh, with the red string going everywhere trying to chase this stuff down. Part of the part of the the allure and the the lore uh, that still. F fascinates us about Eddie is that we don't it isn't a very clear story the progression of the instrumentation we know we know chunks or we at least we think we do yeah right but, but you guys have spent a lot of time trying to like actually connect the real dots well that's the um the, the challenge with Ed part of it is is it's like anybody what what do you remember from you know 10 20 30 40 years ago and he would say these things like with the Frankenstein. I remember when they, you know, when EVH Fender slash Jackson did the um, the replica of the Frankenstein back in 2007. And Ed had said, oh, yeah, I, I that guitar, I, you know, I built it in 74, 75. 
And that never sat right with me. It's like, that just doesn't sound right. It's like, if he had it, then why don't we see it in these photos? And right. over the years, you know, a lot more photos have appeared from the early days online. Um, and fortunately, you know, Greg Renoff with the Van Halen Rising, that kind of brought a lot of stuff out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. And we were seeing these photos it's like, well, where's the Frankenstein? And it's like, I remember, you know, years and years and years ago, it was probably BAM magazine or some other local, like the, the LA Reader or something like that had a picture of Ed playing a Stratocaster with a humbucker in it. And I just, that stuff stuck with me. And like, I, I found out who that photographer was who shot that. But you see these things and you start to put together a timeline. You realize, okay, they were playing at the Starwood. They were playing at the Whiskey. Well, they, you know, you do your research, you find out, well, they didn't play the Whiskey until December of 1976. Um, and I think that the Eureka thing, is like the Rosetta Stone were these photos. Um, there was actually a photo that came out in about 2013 of Ed playing a bare-bodied guitar. And everybody's like, this has to be the Frankenstein. It has the pickguard with the weird notch in it. Um, that, you know, the hand-cut pickguard on it, the black pickguard. Uh, but it had a rosewood fretboard on it and it had this black and white zebra pickup and it wasn't quite there yet and then there was um, this guy Bo Shannon who had detailed photos that he shot and you can see again there it is again there's that bare body guitar and I, I reached out to Bo and found out you know it was Pasadena Civic February 18th 1977 and he also, Bo was like the guy who really put all the dots together because he also had uh, pictures of Ed playing the, the Three Color Sunburst 61 Strat. And then he had Ed playing what we now I, I know is the, um, that's the same Strat, but he painted it white. And it was only that way for a short period because then he had the Frankenstein, essentially. He took the neck off that guitar. I mean, it's, again, it is like it is kind of a beautiful mind. You got to connect all these dots and everything. And but the, the photo evidence is out there. You get the dates and everything. You do the timeline, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, this, this is what happened. You know, it, then Ed didn't actually paint the Frankenstein with the famous black and white stripe finish until July fifteenth of seventy seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, just it's it's really insane, you know. And we've we you know you kind of thought it just came out of the womb, you know. Boom, Ed had the Frankenstein black and white finish, you know, and the cigarette in his mouth, and then he put it in the headstock and whatever. Yeah. Well, and it's it's also interesting because I think uh, a lot of us believe that it's like well first it was there was the white the white guitar with the black stripes and then there somehow that became bumblebee the yellow one or the black one with the yellow stripes and then it, it, it like what the the progression we just we just kind of assumed that that it went like that or, right right uh, but there's a, there's <laughs> your article uncovers quite a few things that are that you know there's like three what how many different necks switching back yeah. and forth on that thing and he did a lot of <laughs> switching back and forth and um the, the thing that mystifies me the most and i didn't actually get the chance because we were limited on space with the um with the article but um i wanted to go a little bit deeper into the fact that you know when he made the frankenstein initially it had two knobs on it and ed always said like i only knew how to hook up the volume pot but um you know he, when he had with the, the original black pickguard, it had two knobs on it. And then when he uh, he put back on the um, the white pickguard, the mid-colored pickguard from the 61, he put that on there. And then it had one knob. But then he, when he first put the black pickguard back on and did the black and white stripe finish, it had two knobs again. Hmm. And I believe, and I'm pretty certain from the timeline, that it had two knobs on it when he recorded the Van Halen, you know, the debut album. 
And then we saw that later when he did uh, when he painted the Frankenstein red. Uh, there's some photos on the '79 tour where the guitar has two potentiometers again. One doesn't have a knob on it. And even the black and yellow, the Bumblebee Charvel, um, there's a picture that was taken for Young Guitar, and they showed the back of it. And it doesn't have a control plate on it. And you can see there's a potentiometer inside shoved in there. Um, what was that doing? You know, mm-hmm. was there something else? Did he have some secret? You know, and it's, I'd, you know, I I'd wish he was still around so I could kind of, you know, probe him about that and say, Dad, what were you doing? You know, <laughs> what, what what's going on there? Was there a tone control? Was it some strange volume thing? You know, what were you doing? That was, that's sort of the, one of the things that, you know, is a string that goes through the entire book. Is that, he was never happy with one thing. He was always messing around with this, that, the other thing, uh, you know, pulling pickups in, putting them out. You know, the, the, we, th- we think of the Frankenstein as a, as a static instrument, but it was very much like how Les Paul used to completely, uh, used to always tinker with his guitars and improve them or change them or experiment with them. Uh, you know, the Frankenstein was a, you know, it was a work in progress throughout his entire life. Yeah. It's, it's such a intriguing thing altogether. I, I have to ask in me, whether it was talking about the gear or just sitting with him, did you get the impression at any point in time that, 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 that he, he wanted to distance himself from that guitar in some way? Or? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, that, he loved that guitar. I mean, that's why he kept it around. I mean, he wasn't sentimental about the guitar. I'm bragging yeah. to test to him throwing it in the back of a pickup truck, you know, with no case and just literally chucking it, you know, yeah. Yeah. in there. So he didn't treat it with kid gloves or anything like that. Um, but no, he, he knew it was an important guitar for his career. I mean, he knew he recorded all these records with it. Yeah. And it just, it was such a reflection of him. Um, I describe in that article as it's kind of it being this magical talisman because I, I don't know for sure because there, we, I don't know if there's any pictures and I doubt it because there were so few people there. But the night that they got signed by Ted Templeman at the Starwood, February 2nd, you know, when, when Ted Templeman showed up, he saw those shows February 2nd and February 3rd. Um, it's highly likely that might have been the first time Ed played the Frankenstein body, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very highly likely that's that was the case, and it's just like, gosh, did that was that just kind of like this? You know, is it like yeah. that magical Louisville Slugger or whatever? You know, yeah, um, yeah. that you know, just all of a sudden everything just falls into place. You know, yeah. Uh, it, it, on that note, you know, you you just said the Louisville Slugger. The Jared and I were talking about this last night, and this is going to come to my next question here, real quick, is that. You know, you have somebody, I said, take any any famous baseball player who has had like this one bat that they've had their whole career, and then it, all of a sudden, you know, they just stop using it. Like, w- w- why would why would someone do that? And that conversation was the, the preempt to uh, trying to determine like, um, you know, as I, in 1991 uh, uh, for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge comes out, and that's the first time we're not really seeing the guitar true well actually and before that i mean the, the kramer you know he went to the kramer 5150 that kind of became the the, the new frankenstein yeah uh, starting with the 1984 album 
but yeah, no, but it was, it was, it was like, I think that was part of it was, you know, he started to become involved with guitar companies. So I think he also felt a bit of a duty to them, mm-hmm. but he also liked the guitars he was playing, uh, with Kramer, it happened to be, you know, guitars that he went and built himself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he went to the factory and he, he insists that he really only built the 5150 guitar and the 1984 guitar and the rest were built by Kramer employees, mm-hmm. you know, and just stuff that he had is either tour backups or giveaway guitars or whatever. But um, the, the two that he actually hand built himself were those two guitars. Uh, and then, of course, he got involved with Ernie Ball Music Man, and that was a much more in-depth project, and it just went from there. Yeah. I mean, that so, was the most noticeable change, because even the Kramer ones, it was like, that's still kind of like the guitar, but you, you know, outwardly facing, not radically different. But here's this, here's this, the rock god, you know, uh, guitar player, who all of a sudden is playing a completely different guitar. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I th- I think one of the things that we're trying to stress in the book was that as much as everybody tried to, uh, you know, fans included, tried to keep Ed in this sort of. Mm-hmm you know, little cage, you mm-hmm. know, the smiling guy with the red and white striped guitar. That wasn't in Ed's vocabulary at all. He was always trying to push ahead, do something different, discover new things, whether it worked or whether it didn't work. He really had very little uh, sort of regard for the past. So, um, you know, there, a couple things went into him you know, creating the Ernie Ball guitars or the Wolfgang guitars. One is he just got tired of everybody just basically ripping him off. I mean, we sort of talk about him in the book going to these music stores and them turning into weird funhouse versions of of the guitar that he made. Mm-hmm. Like he'd go in there and see all of a sudden other companies putting in the one pickup and putting the stripe. And the guitars being sort of crappy, you know. So uh, I think he thought, well, screw it. I'm not going to let these people exploit all of my ideas and I'm going to keep moving forward. So that was a big part of it. You brought up Unlawful Carnal For To me, one of the interesting things about that record was uh, it's the first time you really hear Ed using a neck pickup. Yeah. For better or for worse, you know. And I think he really wanted to create a guitar that had more versatility. Hmm. He wanted to, he was going for different sounds and different ideas. And uh, the idea of using a a neck pickup, if he could get it to sound the way he wanted it to sound, was uh, totally intriguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that kind of makes me feel like... Um you know something else that we discussed, which was it, it, it did the did that did the I guess the Frankenstein become start to become almost equal to or bigger than him. Hmm. In some respects, yes, and I think the the thing though that you kind of alluded to is that a lot of people weren't aware, and Ed even says that like you know either people thought he was t- taking the same guitar and just kept on modifying it and giving it new paint jobs, or else they thought he just had a different guitar every time. Yeah. So, but I think I think yeah, the, the red and white and black version of Frankenstein just is just became such a part of Ed's personality and this image that he had yeah. that it really was. I mean, it's you know you saw that even when um, 
I think it was the 2012 tour where he brought out, uh, and actually he even did it a, a bit on the 2007 and 8 tour where he brought out the replica mm-hmm. of the Frankenstein and it would get cheers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, uh, yeah. All hail red guitar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit, and the big transition was when uh, the Ernie Ball Music Man uh, version came out. Um, how did that transition over? I, I was always kind of confused what the, you know, how, how it transitioned over into the PV Wolfgang uh, model. I, I don't know, did something, you know, fall apart at Ernie Ball Music Man and, and then he shopped it over to PV, or how did that work? Well, I think the thing was, it's, it's kind of interesting. I know Sterling Ball very well. He's a good friend. Um, you know, there, there's a little bit of some, some gossipy crap that's out there, uh, and I'm not going to bring it up because uh, that's between the parties involved and whether it's true or not, who knows, and I don't really care. Uh, but the, I think the thing was really with Ed was at first he liked the idea of having this kind of, you know, hand-built, you know, up in San Luis Obispo, short drive for him to go up to the factory, and he loved the idea that it was kind of limited. But after a while, he got sick of people saying, like, dude, I ordered your guitar. It's like a two-year waiting list. Mm. You know, I, I can't get it. I want one, you know, and everything. And he was just tired of people telling him, I really like that guitar, but I can't get one. You know, and PV was well-equipped to, to mass-produce the guitar. And he already had the deal. Actually, Sterling's the one who set up the deal with him and PV. He's the oh. one who told, told Ed that you should call PV up to, to do an amp. You know, because Ed wanted to do an amp. Right. And Sterling's the one who said, you should talk to Hartley Peavy, you know. Um, And so he's the one who opened that door up. And then Ed kind of, you know, said he realized, oh, well, hey, you know, Peavy's making my amp. Well, they can make they can make my guitar, too. You know, so CS door shut, you know. Okay. And it sucked for Sterling, you know, and uh, it was it was it was tough, you know. But um, they just, you know, I. They still, you know, they make guitars in limited amounts and they keep their quality very high. Mm-hmm. And with, with PV, he just saw that they could, you know, they could churn these things out all day long and everyone could get them, you know, and the price would be cheaper too. Right. And then Fender, and then Fender was the next step after that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, early on, we've got uh, Charvel in the mix. And, you know, that arguably, that is that where he got the the initial body right i think yeah yes uh, charvel's interesting i think charvel was like ed's college you know of course um he used to go to that shop all the time and just sit on the floor and watch them do stuff and pick up knowledge and everything and uh, again I, we couldn't get this nerdy in the book uh it, it may be there may be there'll be a guitar nerd book one day but <laughs> you know it's been said that ed even like the, with the variac idea actually came from charvel because i had come across um, something just completely unrelated, but I was looking up just Charvel history. And that was kind of part of the timeline thing to Frankenstein was when, uh, which is why 74 and 75 was just impossible, which I'll get to. But um, I was reading this thing about Wayne Charvel talking about, oh, I had a friend and he used to modify Fender twin amps by putting a variable transformer in them, AKA a Variac. Mm -hmm. And he had one at the shop. Uh, And it's just like, oh yeah, I bet Ed saw that, you know, I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, um, you know, he went to Charvel and just, he started to learn tips about putting guitars together. He went there and got pickups, you know, and things. Cause that was his big thing was just putting in pickups in guitars. That's, he did that. And I think pretty much every guitar he owned early on, except for the Ibanez destroyer. Uh, and then of course, after he cut it up and turned it into the shark after the first album was recorded, uh, then he started swapping pickups on that too. Mm. But, um, 
Yeah, Charvel, um, you know, through my research, and I went through all my old guitar player magazines, uh, 74, 75, 76, 77, 78. Um, I looked up every Charvel ad, and you can see this progress. They started out, and the thing that they initially sold were, were jack plates and uh, re strat replacement pickguards. And the bodies don't start showing up until late 76. And that's it fits with those photos when he shows yeah. up with the you know the guitar with the, the naked body, um, you know, and and he actually even Wayne Charvel had said that him and Dave Schechter actually spent a weekend and they built like about a hundred guitar bodies and uh, Charvel insists that it actually wasn't a boogie bodies, uh, but it was actually one of those bodies that him and Dave Schechter built. Uh, and there's a few people out there who have dug, done the really, you know, deep diving and looked at the contours and all this other stuff and said, yeah, there may be some credence to that. But at the same time, Chip Ellis told me that there was a boogie body stamp on the Frankenstein when he did the replica. Hmm. So I don't really know where to go with that. I might lean more towards Chip Ellis having said that. But then again, there may be political ramifications behind that. I don't know. Um, but it's I, I think Chip was pretty much straight shooter at that point. In fact, we had to kind of take boogie bodies out of the article because it was a legal concern with Fender now making this thing. Oh. Um, even though it was, even though it was a, even though it was a boogie bodies copy of a Stratocaster <laughs> thing, which was their property, go yeah. figure. <laughs> but, um, uh. but yeah, it was just interesting because, you know, you see, you see this stuff come together. Um, the, the boogie bodies neck, um, that's the other thing that doesn't show up on the Frankenstein until that July 15th photo, uh, when it has the black and white finish, you know, before that it had the 61 Strat, uh, the Rosewood, uh, fretboard on it with the, the rounder, um, you know, with a, a 7.5 inch radius on it. Um, and, you know, Ed always says, I spent $50 for the second and I bought this neck for $80. And it's like, well, Boogie Bodies started, you see this in the Boogie Body, I mean, the, the Charvel ads where they're advertising Boogie Bodies products. And all of a sudden you, you see a picture of a neck and it looks exactly like the Frankenstein neck. And that comes a little bit later. It comes in about, I think, like the, probably the April issue or something like that, April 77 issue of Guitar Player. Um, I think that Ed actually ordered the body at the same time that he got, I mean, ordered the neck at the same time he got the body and took a while for, um, oh, well, I can't remember the guy's name, uh, the Boogie Bodies guy. Um, but he had to actually make the neck for Ed. Uh, you know, I think, guys, to just pull back a second, mm -hmm. um, the the big the big takeaway is that uh, this was a thing that Chris discovered that I was surprised about too, is that how much the Frankenstein, how much all the things that we loved about Eddie Van Halen, including the technique of tapping, really just came together in this weird three-month period before they recorded the first record. Mm -hmm. Like everybody thinks that this thing like Ed had been doing this all through his club days and, you know, it had a two, three year evolution. Uh, but really, um, you know, not only the Frankenstein, but you don't really hear like in the early bootlegs, him tapping or doing a few of these techniques. So there's this sort of interesting period where the band gets signed. And then, uh, Ted Templeman can't get to the record right away because he's finishing up a Doobie Brothers record. And so there's this three-month period where Ed and the band are a little dormant. I mean, they're playing a club gig here and there. But during that time, 
we could just imagine Ed was like, my God, here's going to be our big shot. We're going to record our first record. And sort of all these ideas that have been floating in the air, he really pulls them together and focuses in this extraordinary three-month period before the first record gets recorded. So yeah, downtime to to actually pull focus, which is yes. oftentimes the opposite. It's like you're playing, you're playing, you're playing, you get signed, and then all of a sudden it's whirlwind, and, and most people can't remember most of it. Yes. And I think that's Ed was just, you know, that's the thing he was woodshedding. He was really working. You know, I, I think, that, you know, that's Ed talked about like that. with the, the, the demos, you know, like how he cause it was kind of him and Alex, like they got the demos and they were a little disappointed. Like they listened to him in Alex's van, like, gosh, we were expecting like Led Zeppelin, something really huge. And I think that kind of lit a fire for Ed. You know, it's like, uh, you know, we can do better. You know, and Ed, I think, went to town. You know, he 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 worked on the Frankenstein. He worked on his tapping technique and really just refined it. Uh, he worked on his whammy bar technique. He worked on how to keep the guitar really in tune. Uh, he worked on his tone. You know, just everything. He just he just said, okay, this is going to be my big statement, and that's what he did. You know, yeah. is that. I mean, the demos sound great, you know, and they, they do resemble the first album, but the the first album is just like just like something happened mm-hmm. in between. And, you know, also they spent a lot of time out, um, you know, going to punk shows at the Whiskey mm-hmm. and right. they, they went out and they wrote Ain't Talking About Love, Atomic Punk, Lost of Control. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they kind of absorbed that in their own weird way and came up with this kind of genius stuff. You know, I mean, I just, I love atomic punk that, that intro is just, I mean, talk about the jet phaser, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. the jet lizer, you know, it's like, that's, I just love that, that, that dissonance. It's just like, wow, this is like, who does that? You know, that's, that's more punk than punk because there's <laughs> not even a note, you know? Yeah. Do you think that, uh, when he changed the neck from the 61 strat to, the what's on it now or was on it at the time that was part of him improving his tapping technique and, and things absolutely like that. Yeah. absolutely it had the the, the jumbo frets on it it had a, a wider flatter radius um I, I know it's in that guitar world article that i wrote but it was you know the, there's the specs are there you know for like a type c neck i think they called it or whatever mm-hmm. and it just it really did facilitate that for ed you know, that he was, it was much easier for him to perform that. Whereas with, you know, a, a 61 Strat neck is kind of round, you know, and kind of thin and uh, has these little frets on it, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's the thing. You don't really hear that, what we all know and love is that, that, that tapping segment that ends eruption. You don't hear that in Ed's eruption solo really until like these mid-July uh, bootlegs, hmm. you know, and afterwards, uh, before then, you kind of hear little bits and pieces of it, but you don't hear this fully formed showcase. Yeah, you know. Uh, speaking of the the neck and the frets and everything, um, w- one of the questions that we got from our listeners was, um, did did uh, did the Frankenstein ever get refretted? Oh, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Ed, Ed wore through frets. I mean, that's why you know his current Wolfgang. Uh, when you know when they did that, uh, you know at EVH it has stainless steel frets on it because mm-hmm. Ed would just wear through frets in like you know a, a matter of weeks sometimes. So it was definitely refretted. Yeah, um, it was really interesting uh, when we would uh, Chris and I would hang out with uh, Ed at fifty one fifty. Invariably, Ed would pick up a guitar and and, and play and demonstrate something, or you know. Uh, make a point about a song that uh, we were talking about and he would pick up the guitar and 
there was nothing casual about the way he played the guitar. He, you know, everything, even when he was just showing you thing, had purpose. And he really just, uh, you know, had a very heavy hand on the fretting hand and on the picking hand. Mm. Uh, it was like the unplugged guitar was amplified already, yeah. you know, wow. and, and you heard like 90% of that Eddie Van Halen tone, you know, it's just like, it just, it sounds like Van Halen. Yeah. Um, it was just amazing, you know. Was he a person when talking with him, do you think that he always had to bring it back to music or, or, or did it always, did the conversation always stay there or was he a kind of person who was like, yeah, yeah, everybody wants to talk to me about guitar stuff, but hey, how about the Mets? <laughs> you know? Never. No, no. He, he. That's why he talked with Brad and I so much, because we're guitar players ourselves, and it was just like, I think people wanted to talk with him about the other stuff, and he didn't want to talk about that. He wanted to talk about the guitar stuff. Um, you know, when he did the, the Wolfgang guitar, I went down to the Fender um, custom shop in Corona, and, you know, they set up all these cameras, like the, the big Hollywood production and everything. This is because it's going to be partially for Fender for promotional purposes. Mm -hmm. But we talked for hours. And, I mean, you talk about what went into the Wolfgang EVH guitar, uh, two years of development, nine months spent on pickups. Um, and he was just talking about every detail. I mean, and he could go on and on about yeah. that he would talk about screws he would talk about you know magnets he would talk about potentiometers he would talk about tuners and their effect on the guitar's tone and it was the stuff that would make most people's eyes glaze over but for you know guitar players and i remember nick bocott was working for fender at the time now you know over at sweetwater but he worked for marshall and various other places um just afterwards he was just like wow that was just like you know that was like something else, you know, it's just, you know, for us guitar players, it was just like, this is like sitting there and like having a, an audience with Jesus or something, you know. But, but he was, uh, you know, we try to get sort of at the psychological component of what made the guy tick. And there's no question that there was uh, a certain obsessive compulsive quality about, uh, about him and his playing and, um, you know, even to the distraction of his own bandmates, where, where he'd be like, "No, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna be working here all night. We're gonna be here." You know, at at one point in the book talks about sleeping maybe four hours, five hours uh, a night, and then getting up the next day, and going right back in the studio, and going right back at it. And one of the things that you discover through this book is how much time this guy spent in the recording studio. Yeah. Uh, we we sort of made this comparison that, you know, when he was a kid uh, and he was a little bit of an outcast because he was an immigrant uh, and wasn't great with the language when he was young. So he spent all this time in his bedroom just focusing on whether it was playing piano or playing guitar. Uh, he spent a lot of time on his own and thinking about every last bit of his playing, of the guitars, of his amps, this, that, the other thing. Um, and in many ways, it could be argued that 5150 was his studio, was just basically an extension of his of his bedroom. Mm. <laughs> you know, the, the place where he would Still go to get away from everybody and just... 
Yes, exactly. I'm sure you guys saw the uh, uh, McCartney many documentary series. Yeah. Now, what a missed opportunity to have. You know, it would have been, you know, can you just imagine if, if Rick Rubin would have done something with Eddie Van Halen, much in the same way that he did the, the McCartney uh, documentary series. I mean, all the things that we could have learned. And I'm sure Eddie probably would have just loved going in and tearing, you know, pulling out part, bits and pieces of guitars and, uh, you know, the guitar parts the on tape and all the tracks yeah. and things like that. Well, with sure. all, all due respect to uh, Rick Rubin and, and or anybody else, and uh, not to toot our own horn, but that's essentially really what <laughs> toot this your book horn. is. That's what toot this it is for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's eruption conversations with Edward Van Halen, and if you don't walk away from this book knowing ninety nine percent of what made this guy tick, then you weren't reading the book. I think, I mean, l listen, I enjoyed the Rick Rubin McCartney thing. I don't think it was that great though. <laughs> yeah. I, I, for, for the record, I said that the, the first time that Tony brought it up, I was like, hey, you know, it's pretty. He's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I liked it. I learned a few things. I thought uh, some of the, uh, you know the the portions that they really bumped up the bass so that you could hear it better. I, I was what I was surprised at is how aggressive uh, Paul McCartney's bass playing was at times. Yeah, sure. Um, oh yeah. But yeah, there was a little too much. Uh, you know, I, I saw a meme that that said something to the effect that uh, everybody needs someone in their life that looks like Rick Rubin looking at Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you know, that that little setup that we did right there, um, I think, tells a lot about what your book actually does. And, and, I'm, and I'm glad that you guys jumped on that because, you know, there, as you mentioned, there are lots of books. Um, many things have been done. Many things have been said about his career and his guitar playing and the band and everything. But what you are essentially providing is that, you know, being able to, to, as a reader, really pull up a chair right next to, to you guys in the room with him. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that Ed was willing to talk about everything, yes. you know, fr from his, uh, you know, his, from his music and his, from his personal life. And, but you had to be able to talk, you had to enter through the music in order to get him to open up about the, the rest of his life. And I think that that's really the, uh, the mm -hmm. lovely thing about uh, his conversations with Chris and I was that, you know, you might get sort of a gear centric view from listening to this conversation, but I think we, we also talk quite a bit about how his personal life impacted the music as well. Um, there's a huge section in there about uh, a very controversial point in his life, which is we refer to as the lost years, mm -hmm. which is this. This is a Howard Hughes type stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. like what is a little surprising is that in the last 20 years of his life, Ed only recorded one record. So what was he doing for those 20 years? You right. have to ask yourself. And, uh, 
it wasn't he wasn't just hiding he was playing music he was doing different things and what we tried to reveal in this book was what was his thought process why did it all stop what were the problems that were going on in his life how was he feeling about that what was going on with the music mm-hmm. i think the thing with that you know and that's something i don't even know if rick rubin could have gotten from i mean rick's a producer and you know paul mccartney's a bassist and a musician so they they, they have a, a camaraderie we had a you know brotherhood with ed as guitarists um, and that's kind of where our conversation started, you know, and it's just, I think we had a certain level of comfort with him because we could appreciate, you know, he knew that we could appreciate what he was doing, what he was talking about. You know, if he talked about capacitors and EL 34 tubes and six CA seven tubes, we understood that. Um, and that helped him open up about the other details in his life. That you stuff know. was important to him. <laughs> it was important to him, and it is important to him. Um, and but you know, at the same time, that, that made it easier for him to talk about some of these other issues, especially to get into that deep stuff. That sort of like third chamber of like, who is this guy, and what's making him up, and what is the result of those circumstances? Yeah. One of the things I wanted to mention, I I remember this is a story that I've shared um, on the podcast uh, early on. Actually, it might have been one of the first episodes we were just kind of talking about what got us into things. And uh, I remember uh, I was in a music store, and it was, I guess it was probably around 89 because there, uh, one of the magazines on the shelf uh, it said Eddie Van Halen, guitarist of the decade. And I'm, I can't remember for the life of me which one it was, but I remember the pull quote, like it was tattooed on my forehead. And it's actually at the bottom of our website, and it has been since we put it up. It says, I play guitar like I'm falling down a flight of stairs and hope to land on my feet. Yeah. That just absolutely nailed me because in some small way, he was like reaching out to like every guitar player at every level. This this is a sort of a interesting story. I was talking with a good friend of mine. Uh, you guys may be familiar with his name. I don't know. His name's Andy Allidort. He's a great guitar player. He... Uh, made his reputation as doing a lot of the transcriptions for Guitar World, but he's also a, a fantastic guitar player in his own right. And he played uh, in Dickie Betts's band for a while. Mm-hmm. And he was just telling me this story the other day, and I thought it was terrific. Um, so he'd been playing in Dickie's band for Dickie Betts of the Allman Brothers, for those that don't know out there. Um, he had been playing in Dickie Betts' solo band for like two, three years with a lot of the same guys. And he said one night they were playing this one show and this was two or three years into, uh, you know, these guys playing together and they had just played an amazing show. And he said, like, it was like, I could remember thinking while I was playing how tight we were, how great everything sounded. uh, And I was so happy. And then it went to the bus afterwards and Dickie came in and he said, everybody come around. I've got, I've got uh, let, let, we need to talk. And Andy said, whenever you heard that out of Dickie, all of a sudden he would be completely terrified. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a good sign. And Dickie goes, you know, you guys played unbelievable tonight. Like you got every chord right. You were, uh, you know, it was tight as a drum. Like, it sounded like a record. He goes, 
if you do that again tomorrow night, I'm going to fire all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Because, yeah, because, you know, if you aren't living on a knife's edge, if you aren't courting danger, if you aren't doing something uh, new and different and exciting, then you aren't really being a musician. You're being a jukebox. Yeah. And uh, you evolve. And that was the thing about Ed, man. He was always talking about. I mean, you'll you'll hear it. You'll 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 hear it. You'll read it in the book a dozen times, where he'll be like, "I don't care about the past. I'm looking at the future. I'm looking at the future." And even during his lost years, even though during those years where he wasn't recording, he uh, records. He was recording, and he was always pushing himself in the studio and creating new things. That's where his head was at. So when you say, well, you know, why isn't he just, uh, you know, playing the Frankenstein? Why is he doing this Wolfgang thing? Why is he doing the Ernie Ball thing? It's because he was a restless, creative spirit Mm -hmm. who wanted to be falling down those steps all the time, you know. Yeah. I do want to make a comment that uh, part of the reason I think where I am today was – I love to switch out pickups. I couldn't leave anything alone. I had to change things and figure out how they work. Yeah, I'm pretty much at my dream job now uh, because of that. Because cool. I, I started that little pickup business. I sold it. I got an offer from Gibson, and here I am, you know, building prototypes for artists that have not come out yet. So I, that's what he means to me. You know, he's the thing that people overlook about Ed. I mean, it's like well. You know, at that point in history, in the mid '70s, you know, you did start to see replacement pickups come up, but there was no hero, you know, until Ed right. came along. Like right. he was the one that basically made the business really happen for Demarzio and Seymour Duncan uh, and all the other pickup companies, replacement pickup companies, because here was a guy who that's what he did. You know, like you might have heard, like, oh, you know. The guys, in, you know, Kiss used DiMaggio pickups or something like that, and no one thought of it. But Ed was like this whole thing of like, ah, I'm cha- I'm swapping pickups, I'm changing, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm trying to find my sound, and it kind of like ding, it went off for everybody. Like, oh, I get it, you know, we can I'm do gonna, that too. Yeah. I yeah. I can do that too. I'm going to try and go on that path myself and see if I, you know, what what I can find if I, I can find my own sound, you know. Yeah, he gave everybody permission to be weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, what, you know, you, you were talking about how the pushing it to, you know, if you do that again, the next night, I'm going to fire you all you guys. I like, uh, that's one thing that any, if you're ever watching the video, maybe strikes you more than anything is like, have you ever seen anyone more excited and having more fun doing what they're doing at that moment? When, you know. That's that's the thing that always struck me. Yeah, he's an amazing player, but what, it's it's impossible not to just want to feel like that. I think that that's uh, the reason that Ed is so beloved is that the smile when he was playing was genuine. Yeah, you know, no matter what what was going on in his personal life or whatever issues he might have had or turmoil. When he got on stage, when he had the guitar in his hand, he was a man who uh, was was doing what he was born to do. 
I really appreciate this incredible insight into some of your shared experiences and obviously a lot of the hard work that you've put into this book, Eruption, uh, as well as the the articles, numerous as they as they are, um, especially this this most recent one, Chris. It's been an absolute privilege talking to you guys, and I highly encourage everybody to figure out one way or another of getting this book. And on, on that note, can you tell us how that could happen? Uh, you can basically, and we strongly recommend you pre-order it right now. Yeah. <laughs> Help us get out of the best sellers list. All right. <laughs> uh, but you can, you can get it, you know, it'll be at all the major bookstores or you can, you know, order it online through Barnes and Nobles or Amazon or whatever your your favorite place to uh, buy books. It's coming out on Hachette, which is a uh, very sort of reputable big time. It's like the Warner Brothers company. of the book industry. Okay, and uh, part of the reason that we're so excited about this book coming out too, uh, besides the fact that we wrote it, is that we think that. It actually does more than uh, all the arguments that you can put together between Sammy Hagar, David Lee Roth, or whatever that thing is that, you know, all the gossip stuff. You're going to find out really who Ed was, how he cared about music. And uh, the thing is, is he probably was the most influential guitar player since Jimi Hendrix. Mm -hmm. And that means he's one of the greatest musicians of the 20th century. So, you know, there's gossip, but also you have to respect this guy as a titanic sort of individual and influence on 20th century music. And therefore, it's really important to look at him through that lens. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Well, uh, this is available on October 5th worldwide, um, or at least nationwide. <laughs> Not really sure. Pretty, pretty close to that, actually. We've, I've seen listings for it in Japan, actually, already in, right. in Australia. Yeah. Wow. So. so you can get that on Audible. You can get it at hardcover. You can get it on a Kindle. You can get it. Just get it. That's what we're trying to say, um, <laughs> because if you've listened this far into it, then you definitely need to uh, hear the rest of the story, uh, which they've crafted so well, no doubt. We really appreciate you guys uh, having us on, and uh, and it's a real pleasure talking to you. It's a super smart interview. We appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. And it's great to, to do the, the gear geek out. So I always, always love that. That's, that's my life. Yeah, that's us. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll have to, we'll definitely have to be talking again. I, I appreciate that you said that you, uh, you know, you mentioned the smart interview. We're about to get stupid. <laughs> so if you, if you don't mind getting yeah. stupid with us so, for a couple of minutes. Yeah. Let your reptilian brain <laughs> start functioning. Stupid is our wheelhouse. <laughs> and I'll take over from here. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time to head to Stupidville to one of our favorite uh, times of the show, which is Would You Rather Any Van Halen Special Edition? <laughs> okay, Would You Rather. You're walking down the street, you've got your your Van Halen signature guitar. It's, oh, let's say it's, a P, it's the, the PV. 
uh, version. So you're walking down the, and you've got a gig. So you're heading to the gig and you need to use the bathroom. You carry, <laughs> you, know, you have your guitar with you in the bathroom and oh, you no. set it, you set it in the sink area and you go use the stall. And you're in there a little bit. You come out of the stall. Ace or a deuce. It's gone. <laughs> Obviously, deuce. Oh, no. That's terrible. Somebody takes the guitar away. Okay, so oh, you're man. out of the guitar. Oh, no. Now, luckily, Wolfgang is there. And he was there to see you play. You know, this obviously is make-believe. So he, he <laughs> really? has to the guitar. Yeah, he's like, hey, man. I don't want you to go without tonight. I've got a treat for you. I've got, <laughs> I got the red striped Steinberger or the Ibanez destroyer shark. Which guitar would you rather play for your show? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> this is a good one. This is a good one. Uh, so Tony's going to lead us off and then we're going to find out what Brad and Chris have to say. And then we'll check in with Jared. So, so if we get this right, so the, the Steinberger, uh, which was the tiny little body and the no yeah. headstock, no pegs, yeah. yeah. But it's Weird. still it's still it's still got the official paint job. It mm. does. So these are these are legit guitars. These aren't some you know these these were Eddie's DH guitars. Gate style guitars. Okay, <laughs> right. And so it's either that one or, or the Shark, which is the Ibanez Destroyer with the the back end basically cut out and linked together and with lynch turnbuckle turnbuckles <laughs> yeah <laughs> pretty cool yeah it's a crazy guitar um okay tony what are you doing uh i think i'm going shark all the way yeah i have never been a steinberger fan i i can't <laughs> I, I, I i i i if i try you to go can't to, even say i it. can't even say it i can't the words are not coming out of my mouth <laughs> somebody sliced the stuff off the, <laughs> i mean there. if i go to the first fret you just keep my going. hand my hand just slides right off so yeah no so at least the with the shark I mean, it's relatively an explorer. Yeah. Um, and that's a little more familiar to me. Plus, it's, you know, it's it's so hacked up. It's cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Brad, how about yourself? Well, first I would tell Wolfgang that he has to do something with his hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not working for him. <laughs> oh, you're in the bathroom anyway. Yeah, you're already in the bathroom. <laughs> exactly. There's nobody else around. I'm going to tell him he has to fluff it up or do something. I don't know. Um, well, here's the thing. I have experience with the Steinberger. Those are actually really pleasurable guitars to play. but when you amplify them or play them with a drum kit, they completely disappear. Ah. You know, on on stage, I found that out the hard way. Huh. Uh, I had one of those ones with the wings on it, though. I didn't have like the little triangular. Oh, yeah. Okay. I had I had Vito Brada style through a ADA uh, thing. Um, so yeah, definitely the shark. Okay. All right, Chris. Yeah, come on. The shark. <laughs> I mean, I, know. I thought you might actually me. go for the Steinberger just for the sheer, you know. For me, no, I, 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 I know Ed made it look cool and everything. I can't really entirely forgive him for what he did, considering how much of the first album he recorded with the Ibanez Destroyer. And I, I just, I love those guitars. I have a, an Ibanez, I have a Greco, um, I have a Hamer Standard Custom. 
Um, and I could never see taking a saw. <laughs> any of them. But um, it's just it's 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 the mojo. It's the history. You know, it's just um, I mean, you know, Ed did what with the Steinberger. He did um, uh, what was it? Pleasure Dome, I think. Or he did um, there's like a few songs, you know, where he used the trans trim. Mm-hmm. But um, no, nah, it's come on. <laughs> I mean, Ed said that it sounded like shit after he cut cut the chunk out of it. That made me think a little bit about it. But I, I, and I don't entirely believe Ed when he said that stuff, um, because I saw time and time again, he said this guitar sounded like shit. He said that guitar sounded like shit, and yet he used them constantly on stage. He said the Bumblebee didn't sound all that great, but he used it for the bulk of the 79 tour. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the dragon, the carved dragon guitar, he used that on and off for tours. Um, you know, he brought the shark out, you know, on the first tour and he brought it out again on the women and children first tour. So it's, you know, it, it was around it, it, you know, he didn't junk it, you know, it's so. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Jared, what are you doing? I'm going to go with the the shark. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the Steinberger, I know I could probably fit in a carry-on. Yeah, it would be like you were playing a ukulele. Jared's about 6'7 and about uh, 320, so. Uh, I'm a biggie, biggie gay. Uh, I'll tell you a story from my my gigging days. Um, I played in rockabilly bands uh, during the late 80s and in Hollywood in Los Angeles. um, And I got tired of carrying guitars extra spare guitars with me and i had this i bought this honer steinberger you know really cheap a couple hundred bucks and i brought that johnny winter style wow yeah and i brought it i brought it to a gig and like the lead singer of the band looked at me like what's that and i said oh it's my spare guitar and it's like that's like one of those fucking donuts that you put in your trunk you know <laughs> <laughs> it's like no you're not gonna play that i don't care if you break all your strings you're not playing that guitar yeah. it's a damn donut yeah there's there's a lot to be said about you know maintaining this the style too you know yeah you, you got it it's like what was it uh that that, that ad you know it's like ninety percent of feeling good is looking good yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, well, for men it's it sounds like you and and me and Tony might have a little bit of uh, Billy Zoom love uh mm-hmm. between the, <laughs> between the three of us um, True. so uh well okay I'm I'm just I'm going with the shark. That's a done deal. Like done deal. I, yeah, I mean, I, you should have made that one a little harder. I, th- I thought it would have been harder, but I guess yeah. not. Really? Well, really? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. know. Todd, Todd, I thought you were cool. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Dang! <laughs> all the crud I was building up is out yeah, the window. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, gone. Yeah. It's all gone. the way up to the ninety-nine yard line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fumble. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for that one, Jared. Tony is. We get. We have to say thank you to oh, uh, a yes. handful of people, and then we're going to say goodbye to our friends Brad and Chris. Okay. All righty. So at this point of the show, there is a very special group of people that we love to thank. These are our executive producers. These are sponsors, patrons of, of this podcast that help make it possible. These are the kind of people that rush out to get the eruption book. They'll, they'll probably buy two copies. Yeah. Um, it's uh, Christmas uh, coming up, so. You know. It is. It is. <laughs> yep. yep. And, and shipping is going to be delayed, so you better order now to make sure that True. you get your stuff. <laughs> These <laughs> guys think thinking. of everything. Yes. So you might be your, asking. Your, grand, your grandmother probably actually had 
relations with David Lee Roth. So. <laughs> <laughs> she may want one for Christmas. Yeah. Oh, ain't oh. talking about love. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, goodness. So you might be asking yourself, yes. how do you become an executive producer? Mm-hmm. Quite mm-hmm. simple. Go over to patreon.com forward slash the guitar knobs and check out a couple of different levels in which you can participate. Become a sponsor, a patron of this very podcast. Each level comes with a great bevy of thank you gifts, things like T-shirts and barefoot buttons and stickers and pics and flashlights and keychains and all the good stuff. But there's one thing more as an executive producer. What's that, Jared? Get to have your name read on the thing. Your name read on the thing, and that's what I'm going to do right now. So special, special thanks to these executive producers. Big breath in. Tom Brazen. Darren Gregory, Doug Christ, Ken Sayers, Kevin Robison, Michael Senchuk, Stefan Lamb, Anthony Lathrop, John Anglin, Brad Partridge, John Esterley, Justin Jones, James White, Matt Hart, Bill Gulligataz, Richard Kendall, Ty Harmon, John Jackson, Jason Rausch, Gary Cooper, Mark Garten, Elad Mizrahi, Magdi, Trevor Gunberg, Rick Calhoun, Anthony Gemolero, John Halverson and Drew Lopez. Yes. Brand new Drew Lopez. Yes. Wait but but wait, wait, Todd. Yes. We have another group yeah, of executive producers. It, These are the creme de la creme. These are folks we call our grand poobas. Yes. <laughs> Dinner. <laughs> Dinner is served. <laughs> So special, 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 special thanks to these grand poobas. Jonathan Jerusik, Corey Nigro, David Kaminga, Science of Sound. Yeah. Cody Foster, Sean S. Tommy Manasco, Adam Johnson, Steve Keys, Tim Nowak, Tyler Rines, James Pennington, LSJ Music Company, John Williams, Johnny Morales. Mel Sanders, Bob Crouch, Sam Jett, Michio Murakishi, Martin Cliff, Hex Matos, Michael Van Zant, and new this week, whoa, a new Grand Pooba, Andrew DeHaan. That's right. Andrew! All Welcome right. aboard, mon frere. So grateful. So grateful to all of your support. It keeps the show going, and we cannot, uh, we, we just can't say thank you enough, so th- uh, so I'll just stop right there. Right there. Uh, all right. Brad, Chris, where can people, number one, go get this book, and number two, find out what else you're doing in the world? Well, uh, you can basically buy Eruption Conversations with Eddie Van Halen. You know, anywhere better books are sold. So uh, if you can't find it at... You know, Barnes and Noble, go down the street to, uh, you know, some other place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but but if you go up to Amazon, you could definitely order it up there, uh, many other places. And uh, you're definitely going to want this book. Is that, That's like literally the sloppiest 
uh, plug <laughs> ever. That's, that's a, that's a, that bad, was, that's a know, bad five minute elevator that, speech. That, 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 information out though. That yeah. was like one of Eddie Van Halen's Frankenstein discards <laughs> right there. Sorry. All right. Uh, and, uh, and how about what, uh, what are you, what do you, uh, can people connect to what other things you're doing in the world? For I am uh, I'm social media averse, so I just actually started an Instagram page yesterday. Wow! So I'm I'm like the Unabomber, basically. I'm kind of like I'm in a one um, one room cabin in Montana uh, uh, with five hundred pedals. It was five hundred pedals, basically trying to figure out how to engage in world domination. So I don't want people, you know, coming through my 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 internet lines or whatever and spying on me and um but no that's um basically uh pick up guitar world magazine i review products in there i do tonal recall that's kind of the that's my life you know that and writing books <laughs> so that's a good so, life so so chris you're basically like the listeners of of this show well, essentially, I mean, that's, uh, uh, i mean i can go on and on you were talking about the cars earlier i built an elliot easton um I built a copy of Elliot Easton's custom lead one and a half guitar, um, just for the column, actually, just, um, just to figure out what was going on with it. So it's just, uh, that's what I do. Awesome. Well, um, I'm going to be starting a, uh, not a competing podcast, a complimentary podcast Cool. that will focus on the music and the songs of Jimi Hendrix. Wow. Yeah. That's and exciting. That, yes. Hopefully, uh, you know, that'll be coming to your better internets uh, in the next uh, month or two. Do you have a name for it yet? It's called Guitar Story. Guitar Story. We're going to basically focus on um, this first season is going to be focusing on uh, the music of Jimi Hendrix. I'm going to have sort of a special guest focus on one song, not the entire career. Oh, cool. And we're going to have people like um, Eddie Kramer, nice. uh, Kirk Hammett, uh, John Five, all these different people talking about Hendrix. That's Sweet. awesome. Well, that, that's one that we will definitely be listening to. And we'll make sure that the list, that our listeners uh, know it's out there once uh, that goes live. Also, just so you know, um, order placed. Thanks. Confirmation will be sent to your email. And uh, so the, the uh, hardcover uh, book that I just bought of Eruption is going to go to one of our uh, patrons. So, Oh, nice. Yep. Well, they deserve it. Uh, let's see. Tony? Yes? Where can people hook up with your stuff? Head over to pickguardian.com. Check out some of the things that I have available for, for purchase. But by and large, what I do is custom work. So shoot me an email. Let me know what you need, what you're thinking. I might even be able to give you a tip or two. Cool. And uh, we'll get we'll, we'll we'll take good care of you. Excellent, Jared. Uh, please get a hold of me if you would like to know about pickups. Ask me any question about pickups. Uh, get, get a hold of me through the um, guitar knob social medias. There you go. You can send me an email, toddatheguitarnobs.com. You can also DM me on Instagram, at guitarnobs, and we would love to hear from you. And um, tell us what you thought about this episode, doggone it. And make sure you go out and get Eruption Conversations with Eddie Van Halen. Uh, thank you so much, Brad Talinsky and Chris Gill, for joining us tonight. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks. It was our pleasure, too. Always great. Yes. 
great uh, talking to all of you people. Good, hey. good, good. The me- the many, many people. Jared, <laughs> Tody, yes. Rob, and yep. Todd. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all the things. Rob is a computer voice. Yeah, Rob. <laughs> he was unable to join he us. He might actually night. be a computer. I'm not sure. <laughs> anyways, all right. Where's Uncle Rob? Yeah, no, yeah. he's, he's, uh, he's, anyways. So, uh, hey, everybody, have a fantastic guitar week and subscribe. Oh, yeah. yeah. What time is it? <laughs> Sorry. He's got his grandfather clock thing every, every, yeah. every episode. Every episode. Juba, duba, duba. You know that. Yeah. Chris actually lives inside a gigantic Marshall gingerbread house. <laughs> <laughs> You know, don't trip over, over ourselves you. to Self. answer these guys, guys and stuff. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. What? Just like oh. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> wait, wait. I just got transported to like Monterey Jazz Festival here. What's going on? <laughs> I, I just like the Weller better. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Where, where's the white Zinfandel? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, oh, let's start this dude. whole interview all over yeah, again. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's it for these knobs. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the guitar knobs. Visit our website at theguitarknobs.com for all of our past episodes, four on the floor blog, and other good stuff. You can connect with us on social too at our Facebook page and share your gear and stories on our Facebook group. Also, be sure to check out our Instagram, at Guitar Knobs. Catch you next time.